Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. I'm Susie. I'm happy to be here with you guys this morning. Lauren Winner is the professor of Christian spirituality at Duke Divinity School. In her memoir, she describes a moment that she experienced while attending a protest outside an immigration detention center in North Carolina. The protest was taking place on Holy Thursday. This is the Thursday before Easter, when Christians remember the Last Supper, when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and he shared the cup and the bread with them before surrendering himself to be arrested and ultimately killed. It's a meaningful day for Jesus' followers. In the middle of this protest on Holy Thursday, happening outside this detention center, where people inside had been arrested and were being held, one of the protesters began to read out loud 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And so on. And suddenly these words that are often made very cliche by being reserved for weddings and Valentine's Day cards took on a whole new and completely overwhelming weight. The backdrop that is typically paired with the reading of these words is usually a joyful opportunity to commit to loving someone, a celebration of love, a commitment to love that is freely and easily given. But reading these same words against the backdrop of a politically charged situation where people have been arrested and are being detained, where I imagine fear is running rampant no matter what side you're on, that makes a different kind of impact. What I love about our church is on an issue like immigration, we have people on both sides, some for it, some against it, and we are a richer community because we coexist together. But whatever side you are on with immigration, you can find that this scene moves you a little bit, can't you? Winner calls this method of engaging scripture in unexpected places dislocated exegesis an out-of-place reading of scripture. So in our Mark study so far, we've read about a lot of different people who've been healed by Jesus. Imagine reading these healing stories out loud in the ICU of a hospital. Or in trying to think of a personal example, I thought of my favorite Proverbs. She is clothed in strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. And I imagine reading those words over the women that I sat with in the brothels of Southeast Asia when I went there with the Exodus Road. Engaging with the words of Jesus or aspects of his character in striking environments can unsettle the assumptions that we are likely to bring to the text. Jesus is going to coin this dislocated exegesis technique by saying something in today's text. And the backdrop in which he says it is going to bring new light to his words. And so far in our journey through the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus do quite a bit of unsettling of the assumptions that people were bringing. Assumptions about who he was and, thought, and what they thought that would mean for them. He was constantly misunderstood because people thought they had understanding. And these assumptions that people had about him were the very thing getting in the way 
of their hearts truly seeing who Jesus was and what he came to do. Unsettling those assumptions was necessary to their faith journey, and Jesus knew that. And before we continue, I would like to invite you to consider that you probably have some assumptions about Jesus that could use some unsettling. Would you be willing to join me in prayer, giving God permission to unsettle any preconceived notions that you have about Jesus that could get in the way of what he wants to do in your life? Now, we pray around here on Sunday mornings a lot, so I know it can become habit. I have lost count of how many times someone up front has invited me to join them in prayer, and I nod yes, and then I bow my head, and I start staring at my shoes for some reason, and I think about lunch for some reason, and then I space out for some reason, and then they say amen, and I say amen, and I'm back. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I'm not the only one who does that, right? We all do that. I'm not talking about that kind of invitation to join me in prayer. Um, I'm asking, would you join me in prayer if you're willing to ask God to unsettle any assumptions that you have about Jesus that get in the way of what he wants to do in your life? If you don't want to do that, that's okay. You have my blessing to just think about lunch. It's going to be so good. But if you're interested... Would you join me in prayer? I'm going to read these words over you first. Words of Jesus. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Holy Spirit, I humbly ask you to take this loaf of bread and this fish that I have brought this morning and multiply it and fill every person here up with you. I ask that any heart in this room that is seeking something from you would find it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Where we pick up today, Mark has just described Jesus appointing the 12 disciples, and we sense a new movement in Mark's story. This chunk of text for today is bookended by describing events that took place in a crowded home where Jesus is swarmed by people and confronted by his family. Within these bookends, Mark cuts to a different scene where scribes from Jerusalem confront Jesus. So let's begin with that first bookend. Turn, me if you'd turn with me if you'd like to uh, Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 20, and the verses will be on the screen. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So at this point, this was becoming the norm. The place was packed. There's not enough space or time to even eat something. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Word of Jesus has spread to Jerusalem. The disciples had been called to join him. The crowds are pressing in no matter where they go. And this got back to Jesus' family in Nazareth. And Jesus' own mother, Mary, gathers Jesus' brothers. They could have possibly been Jesus' cousins. There's some debate about that. But she gathers them all up, and she leads them down to Capernaum to find Jesus and to shut this nonsense down. From her perspective, it's gotten out of hand, and Mama Bear is going to show up now. 
And I don't know if it was the snow that we got a couple days ago, but when I was thinking about this scene, I thought about this movie that I watch every Christmas season. It's called A Christmas Story. Have you guys heard that? It takes place in the 50s. It's great. If you haven't seen it, this might, um, or if you have, this will jog your memory. This guy here, Scotty Farkas. Do you guys remember him? Is that, is that ringing a bell? He's like the neighborhood bully. <laughs> um, man, he is always picking on Ralphie and his friends. And this one day, he pushes Ralphie to the edge, to the point that Ralphie totally loses his cool and starts like fighting back to this neighborhood bully. And it's like this awesome moment. Ralphie's so sweet. The voice of Ralphie narrates the whole movie, which is just brilliant. And in this moment that Ralphie snaps, he says something like, I had heard of people under great duress speaking in strange tongues, and I became aware that a steady torrent of obscenities of all kinds came pouring out of me. And he's just beating up Scotty Farkas, and everyone's like, yes, go, go. Meanwhile, little brother Randy, he's the one, he's the baby of the family, so mom like never wants him to be cold and bundles him up so that like, his arms won't even go down. And he's like, oh no, and he runs home and gets mom. And as she comes running up, all the cheering that Ralphie's friends are doing like suddenly stops because his mom is now witnessing all of this. And their, their cheering turns into like, holy smokes, Ralphie, sh- it's your mom, you gotta cut it out. And it makes me think of this scene with Jesus because in Jesus' case, mom is about to show up here too. And not just any mom. We're talking Mary, the mother of Jesus. And something tells me that is not the look on her face when she is... (laughs) Something serious is happening when mom drags like all the kids out of the house to come find you. I don't think she looks like that. She is upset. And I'm sure these brothers of Jesus are equally relieved that mom is showing up to do something, but also a little worried for Jesus at what their mother might witness him doing or saying when they get there. Because Jesus sure seems to be under great duress, and he has certainly been speaking in strange tongues with all this Son of God and Messiah talk. So they are on their way to find him, and I imagine tensions are high as they are en route And just as Mark sets up this scene for us, he decides to jump over to another scenario. So here we go, the very next verse. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So the teachers of religious law, they could not deny the supernatural power of Jesus' miracles. So they simply refused to believe that his power was from God. Because if it was, they would have to accept him as the Messiah. And their pride would not let them do that. Well, destroying his popularity among the people seemed like the next best move. 
So they accused him of getting the power that he showed from Satan. That should discredit him and explain how he's doing all these miracles. And that would give these scholars just cause to do whatever they wanted to control him, even silence him forever. Jesus' reply to their accusation is the first time that we see him speaking in parables. And it just shows them that their claims don't make sense. If the devil is fighting the devil, then Satan's kingdom is obviously coming to an end. Jesus is saying Satan would never back this message that I'm bringing because it fundamentally undercuts Satan's kingdom. Then Jesus goes further and he says, in fact, the only way I would ever be able to get away with what I'm doing and saying is if I had already taken care of Satan. The strong man has been holding people captive long enough. Now a stronger one has come, one who can bind the strong man. And now I'm in his house, taking back what he has stolen. Jesus is saying, while Satan is permitted to work in our world, he has power over Satan. And God's kingdom is indeed arriving, a kingdom in which people who have been held captive are set free. I think this is a good place to use the phrase Jesus juke. It's like the perfect response to the silly things the scribes are saying. And it would have been the perfect place for Jesus to just drop the mic. He had this great response. He should have just stopped there. But he goes on and he says some confusing and kind of scary things about how sins can be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven because they are guilty of an eternal sin. And then suddenly every Christian everywhere and throughout all time gets a little wide-eyed and is like, oh, have I ever done that? <laughs> Has anyone that I, that I know never done that? That seems like a big deal. This is where we've coined this term, the unforgivable sin. Have you guys heard of that? I remember being a teenager and I was really afraid of that. <laughs> Breathe a sigh of relief. This is not something that you can do and be completely unaware of having done it. Jesus is talking about deliberate, ongoing rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit, of God himself. Jesus only ever mentions this sin that will not be forgiven twice. And both times, he connects it to the Holy Spirit. So let's break this down. What do we know about the Holy Spirit? John 15, 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the spirit does a lot of things, but the primary thing he does is bear witness about Jesus. So this question that we've been mulling over as we read through Mark, who do you say that I am? The spirit is given to us to help us answer that question. And the unforgivable sin is when we discount and resist that work of the Spirit in a way that these scholars are doing. Jesus is saying to them, you have seen me for who I am, and yet your heart is so hard that even in the face of these amazing miracles, you're playing the Satan card? And Jesus said, there's no coming back from that. This would be like, say that you have a deadly illness that is certain to take your life, and the only doctor with the cure, shows up to save your life. And you are convinced that doctor is from Satan. So these people have seen Jesus for who he is, and they have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit 
in a permanent way. Okay, remember where we left off with Ralphie and the bully, Scotty Farkas. It was getting really intense there. It's getting intense for Jesus too. People are calling Jesus satanic and his family is getting involved because they think he's gone crazy. Right after describing this encounter between Jesus and the scholars, Mark brings us back to this bookend scene where Mother Mary and Jesus' brothers are all arriving at the crowded house where Jesus is inside. Mom is on the scene, and she probably has like the crazy eyes that is like the universal language. Students, did your parents ever give you this? Like, I got this from my dad all the time. I could see it a mile away. Scare me to death. I imagine that's what she looked like. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And this is where we see Jesus use that dislocated exegesis that I opened with. Why would Jesus say that with his mom right there? He's wanting to disrupt some things all right. He's making a statement. Now, for us Westerners, Jesus' words about family are maybe only mildly shocking. It probably depends on, like, what your mom is like. <laughs> it's normal for us to move away from our parents and our siblings. In fact, it's probably more common for us to have develop a circle of friends uh, that we may spend more time with, that may know us better than our own parents or siblings. So while a comment like this seems harsh to us, let's be honest, we're familiar with some family distance these days. But in Jesus' world, this was absolutely scandalous talk. The family bond was strong and lasted a lifetime. Most families even all remained in the same house. And in the Jewish community, Jesus' community, family was everything given to you by God and meant to be the filter through which you thought about the world around you and the standard through which you lived out your loyalty. One commentator, Tom Wright, says that to break that link is to undermine a major pillar in the way Jews in the first century think and feel about the world and themselves. So this is a really big deal. The pillars of family are visible with his own mother and family standing right there. And Jesus just chops right through the whole traditional structure in one swoop. This act is meant to disrupt the way everyone there thought and felt about the world and themselves. So unless you read this part of the story as deeply shocking, then you've misunderstood Jesus. And I remember this story being a disruption to me the first time that I really spent time thinking about it. I was just a teenager. Because when I look at this story, I see Jesus' family, who I would assume would naturally be in with Jesus, right? And then I see this crowd of people, sinners and strangers. I would just naturally assume those people were on the outs. And Jesus says it's just the opposite. Okay, I can adjust to that. Jesus is always doing this reverse economy thing. And I love a good underdog story. 
but it was especially disruptive to me because when I look for myself in this story, I see myself more as one of the members of Jesus' family, more than any other character in this story. This is why. I grew up in church. I grew up a pastor's kid. I married a pastor's kid. I spent some time as a pastor's wife while my husband was a pastor. Now I'm a pastor. We have our own pastor's kids. We're like taking over. Church has always been a part of my life, always. Always known the truth about God. I've always just believed it. I've always tried to live it out. Now, I'm not saying I've always been perfect or have it all figured out. I wrestle with my faith. What I'm saying is when you're raised around Jesus all your life, you're just more inclined to feel like you're just part of his family. And in the story, that's where I see myself. But that's disruptive. Because why does that put me standing outside on the porch of this house with Jesus inside saying those people were his family. There's an actual porch that I can recall standing at in Minitree, Haiti. Minitree is one of the villages that we spend time in when we send a team to Haiti. We're partnered with Mission of Hope there. My oldest daughter and I went with one of our teams a few years ago. And I can recall this porch and this house so well because it made such an impression on me. The porch was just a pile of dirt just inside this little thatch fence made of sticks and mud. The front door to this house was a a dirty old sheet strung up with some rope. Just inside this house was one room. Over in the corner was a single mattress where I assumed the entire family slept. There was a tiny little table, a couple of mismatched chairs, There was a glass vase with a single flower sitting on this table. And one of the walls and the entire roof of this little home was made up of a giant bright blue plastic tarp. These blue tarps can be seen everywhere in Haiti. They are the result of disaster relief efforts there after the catastrophic earthquake that devastated that country almost 10 years ago now. 230,000 Haitians were killed and almost 3 million affected. Disaster relief handed out these blue tarps to the countless homeless families as makeshift shelter. Their homes were toppled to the ground. These tarps were the only form of protection from the elements that these families had. Families built homes beneath these tarps. They put little flowers and vases on tables beneath them. They built walls out of sticks and mud. They made doors out of sheets. These makeshift shelters provided a sense of safety. Thank God for these tarps, these shelters. But here's the thing. These tarps were never meant to be the long-term solution for a home. After years of living beneath these tarps in the Haiti sun and heat, Haitians began to have health problems that they had never had before. For one, the brightness of the sun through these bright blue tarps, after weeks and weeks and months and years living underneath them, it began to damage their eyes and they couldn't see. 
So relief efforts began focusing on getting families out of these blue tarp makeshift homes. You may remember, as part of our Christmas offering a few years ago, we were involved in an effort called Blue to Block, where we raised the funds to build 10 cinder block homes, and we moved 10 families out of these blue tarp shelters and into solid block homes. And I remember standing on the porch of this little tarp home and being so excited that this family could get to move into a real solid block home. And one of the village champions that we were with explained to me that after the family moved into their block home, part of the agreement made with them was that they would, they would have to come back here to this tarp structure that we were standing at. And they would have to tear it down to the ground. And I said, oh, how symbolic. I bet that's so meaningful for everyone. And he said, no, that's not symbolic at all. Making them tear this thing down to the ground is for their own good. Because we found that most of the time, part of the family will just come right back here and continue living here. They're all overcrowded. Or another family entirely will swoop right in the moment that this family is gone, take in residency, and the health problems just continue. They can't stay here. These structures were never meant to be the long-term solution. In fact, it's harming them at this point. It's not protecting them. They have to leave. And unless we tear it down to the ground, they won't. For some reason, someone always comes back. In this story that Mark shares with us, it seems important to prop the religious leaders and Jesus' family up together, side by side. Mark seems to highlight the fact that those who looked to be in great positions to make sense of Jesus had some real hurdles to get over before they could see him for who he was. I'm pretty sure that's me. I looked to be in a great position to make sense of Jesus. With all my security and my line of pastors and my privilege and my knowledge, maybe those things can actually be a hindrance to me. Meanwhile, it's the nameless people in this gospel, the people that exist off in the margins, who come off as ideal followers of Jesus. The needy, the broken, the desperate. These hard circumstances seem to open hearts in a way that security and privilege do not. The religious leaders, they had all this knowledge and they created a system with it and they knew how to always win in that system. What security? Always being at the center of things. I know what that's like. Well-connected families rested easy in traditional structures. They had social stability, Jesus' family included. I know what that's like. These groups really wrestled with the disorienting character of his message because Jesus' message threatened the way they had always thought and felt about the world and themselves. While the marginalized and the sick and the struggling are just begging for someone to crush those traditional structures and turn social stability on its head, they'd give anything to change the way they think and feel about the world and themselves. And I think that's the answer for us. 
I think that's what I need to consider when I feel like I can relate more to Jesus' family members who are left outside. And instead of being threatened by this disorientation, can I be humble and trusting enough to let Jesus lead me to the margins? Everything I see about Jesus in this book shows me that the margins are his center. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to say when he responded with, who are my mother and my brothers? He wasn't rejecting his actual family. He was rejecting a posture of introverted concern for his own life and his own people and his own circumstances. A posture like that is a structure of false security. Jesus was modeling the true family of God, a community that exists for the non-members, a community defined by outward action. And a family like that, everyone has security. Everyone fights for everyone else. And a family like that, I cannot say we are flourishing if the marginalized around me are not. Are we willing to let Jesus disrupt the way we think and feel about the world and ourselves so that we can be that kind of community? Because if we are nestled safely within any kind of structure that isn't just Jesus himself, that shelter eventually becomes harmful to us. It becomes a hurdle for us, making it harder for us to see Jesus for who he really is. How do we or the communities that we are a part of so easily tend to become the very thing that Jesus was always trying to disrupt? I believe this is a message for Pulpit Rock Church and for every generation of the church to come because sometimes we turn church into a blue tarp shelter. We do that when we just start going through the motions. We do that when we create such a safe place here that we never want to leave or we never want to invite anyone else in. We do that when we show up week after week without expectation. We do that when church just becomes something we do and not something we are. And what I'm learning here at Pulpit Rock with you is to resist that. I'm interested in the life-changing Jesus that we're reading about here. I want to show up here at Pulpit Rock Church in Colorado Springs in the year 2019, and I want to expect the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that hovered over the darkness upon the face of the deep. I want to expect that Spirit to show up when we gather and to bear witness to this Jesus that we're reading about and whisper words that comfort me when I'm in despair and words that disrupt me when I'm on cruise control. I want that spirit to lead me beyond myself, to lead me to life-changing action outside these walls. That's the church I want. I don't wanna play church. I've spent too much of my life doing that. That's a blue tarp makeshift structure. And I'll just go first here and I'll confess to you that I'm tearing that blue tarp down and I don't wanna go back because it's become harmful to me. And I can't see Jesus clearly inside that thing. 
I was having coffee with a friend last week, and we were talking about the disruption in our lives. Neither one of us really enjoy it, but we know disruption is a part of growth. She's an incredible artist, and she was showing me some paintings that she had done, inspired by her recent journey. And they were this amazing mix of like darkness and beauty, and it really just stirred my spirit up. And I remembered something that I had read somewhere about art, and I shared this with her. Truly beautiful art should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. It seems like that's what Jesus was always up to. I know there are afflicted people here today. Do you feel as if you only ever exist in the margins? Take heart, because that's Jesus' favorite place to be. His love seems to be able to speak louder there. I pray that the Spirit is bearing witness to the balm that Jesus is to your affliction. I know there are comfortable people here today. To the comfortable, I ask, what structure in your life might Jesus be trying to disrupt? To change the way that you think and feel about the world and yourself? Is there a structure that you've built that you now find your identity in and it's become harmful to you? Maybe you didn't build it. Maybe you were just born into it and you never even knew it was there until Jesus showed up. He's inviting you to tear it down so you stop going back. Jesus comes into an established, established structure, an established way of thinking and he says, you don't belong to this structure. You belong to each other. Are you comfortable? And so Jesus' message is afflicting you in some ways. Pay attention to that affliction because that is where you are not free. Are you afflicted? And so Jesus' message is comforting you. Pay attention to that comfort because that is his Holy Spirit bearing witness to you the power that Jesus has to make you whole wherever you find yourself. Jesus wants to lead you home. I'd love to practice what Becky introduced to us earlier in the service, just some silence and space for the Spirit to speak. I invite you to just listen, and then whenever you're ready, Respond however you feel led to. You can sing, you can light a candle, you can write a prayer at the prayer wall. We want to invite everyone to the table this morning, but I want to be clear about something. This isn't our table. This is Jesus' table. He sets it for all of us. He invites all of us to it. To draw us out of our false securities, to draw us in from the outside.